Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Professor Tori Janssen of Stockholm University about his book, The History of Languages and Introduction. This very wide-ranging book, drawing on Professor Janssen's extensive research, discusses the role of historical factors on the development and spread of language from the familiar cases of Latin and Greek to the languages of Southern Africa and Australia. In this interview, we talk about some of these developments, we discuss the cultural importance of written language to the durability of the Egyptian civilization, and the role of literature in the formation of the modern nation-state, and we speculate a little about whether technological developments will lead to new patterns of change in the future. My guest today is Tura Janssen of Stockholm University, and we're talking about his book, The History of Languages and Introduction. It's a very lucid and readable book discussing the patterns of language development from a historical perspective. Thuri, your academic career seems to position you ideally to write this book. Could you tell us a little about your work? Well, I started out in the field of classics uh, and uh, actually in the field of Latin literature, where I earned my, my doctorate a long time ago. Later on, I... Uh, got more interested in the linguistic aspects of uh, language study and uh, it took a, a great deal of interest in, in uh, developments from, from Latin uh, to the Romance languages, uh, Italian, French and so on. But uh, from there, I somehow... Uh, managed to to widen my my, my uh, sphere of, of uh, research to to uh, um, the general problems concerning changes in languages, uh, and uh, that was the reason actually that I started uh, studying uh, some languages in Southern Africa uh, because I I. Uh, was eager to find out certain facts about uh, changes that seemed to be going on there. Uh, that turned out to be a long-standing occupation. So, so in fact, for for a couple of decades, I worked uh, with Latin and uh, with African languages uh, in tandem, more or less, in, all the time uh, trying to find out more about uh, uh, about language change and uh, especially its relations to uh, changes in, in societies. Uh, so, so uh, well, uh, that's a very brief summary of my uh, way towards the present, uh, uh, my present interests, which are still very much uh, centered around the, uh, this field, uh, more or less in between. Uh, history and, and language. And this book draws on your earlier work, Speak, A Short History of Languages, which was published by OUP in 2002. What does this volume do differently? Well, uh, in the first place, of course, it's written about uh, a decade later, or a little more, actually. Uh, uh, so... Uh, the perspective is slightly different, uh, mainly because uh, I've worked more with those uh, uh, questions uh, and problems. It's it's a uh, a book that incorporates uh, a great deal of what's in the the earlier book, but it adds uh, some other and more perhaps more general perspectives. Uh, it, it also adds uh, a number of uh, chapters on, on uh, areas that weren't covered at all in the earlier book. Uh, primarily, um, I, I include chapters on, on 
Chinese, on Arabic, uh, and uh, a few other areas. Turning to the beginning of your book, you, uh, you start by discussing the emergence of language. And as you point out, many ideas have been um, put forward as to the evolutionary motivation for languages and innovation. Are there, in your view, any outstanding candidate explanations? The problems are uh, long-standing and, and uh, unfortunately it, it doesn't seem likely that uh, we will ever uh, get any very full or certain answers to the questions about uh, how and why uh, the linguistic capacity of humans developed. There are uh, almost as many theories as there have been uh, scholars working in the field. My view uh, would be that uh, the primary reason or factor behind the development of language is the, the fact that human beings are, are primarily living in, in close-knit societies with them. Uh, and and are communicating a lot with each other. This is true, of course, uh, for other or many other primates. Um, but uh, uh, for some reason, uh, our species uh, has uh, developed the gift of communication to, to a much higher degree than than any other any other uh, species. And and uh, the path towards Present time of, of uh, present types of languages may have been actually quite long. Uh, we know that uh, uh, our ancestors uh, diverged from from uh, other surviving uh, kinds of, of primates of a very long time ago, several million years ago, and. Uh, it may be that, that uh, our ancestors had uh, precursors to language that were much more advanced systems of communication than, uh, than are found uh, among any other animals, but still are, were quite far from what we have now. But uh, unfortunately, uh, we cannot trace those stages and uh, we would never be able to do that, I'm afraid. You illustrate that point uh, very effectively by, by considering the comparison between the languages spoken by two uh, groups of hunter-gatherer societies, those of Southern Africa, as you mentioned just now, and those of Australia. Um, and you make the point that their languages are themselves very distinct from one another, at least in, in formal uh, aspects. Does that degree of difference suggest that it's impossible to guess any of the specific properties of uh, early human language? Uh, well, uh, human languages are very over a very wide spectrum and, and uh, people who live as uh, gatherers and hunters, as everyone did uh, up to uh, around 10,000 years ago, they uh, usually have languages that are spoken only by fairly few people. Uh, so um, in areas where there have, there are or have been gatherers and hunters around, even in this century, uh, you'll find many languages, hundreds of languages. And uh, two, two such areas are, are Southern Africa, where you find the Khoisan languages, and, and Australia, where you find uh, several hundred languages spoken by the original inhabitants. Um, those languages have many properties that are quite different. The, the, the generally speaking, uh, different uh, Khoisan languages are quite different from each other, but even more different from uh, most languages in other parts of the world. And likewise with the Australian languages, um, the, they are very di divergent, 
among themselves, but they are also unlike all other languages. So, so there is really a great variety of languages that we can see must have been there as early as we can uh, trace languages, which isn't very far back in time, actually. In, in areas where there has uh, where writing has existed, of course, we can trace languages back to the beginning of writing and with the reconstruction a few uh, millennia before that, of course. But, but uh, uh, beyond that, we know nothing or very little about the actual shape of languages. And they may, may be uh, very different shapes. It's interesting that you mentioned writing. Um, my impression was that throughout your book, um, at least from chapter three on or thereabouts, uh, you, you devote more attention to written language than a lot of linguists seem to do. Uh, is that your feeling? Uh, well, yes, I, 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 I do that, certainly, uh, because uh, uh, I believe, uh, well, uh, in the first place, of course, it's necessary for, for anyone interested in, in language change uh, to, to look at written languages because, uh, by and large, written languages is what we have to, uh, in order to know anything about uh, what languages were like um, a long time ago. But in the second place, I believe that uh, the invention of Writing was the single most uh, important invention in the in the history of humans, and it's uh, uh, it's a very very important tool for for any uh, society. You know, it, it happened uh, at the time when uh, society some societies had uh, developed from the uh, stage of gatherers and hunters to the situation where, when people became uh, uh, settled uh, farmers and farmers uh, needed societies of a different kind with more social context, more organization and also uh, more administration. You need to, to cooperate more, and that means uh, you have to keep track of who has done what, who is going to pay for this, and so on. And that was the beginning of language. Yeah, so it, uh, it was a, a written language. So written language originated as a, a um, tool uh, for a very practical purpose, but it turned uh, out that it... Uh, it could be used and has been used for, for very many other important uh, purposes. And that, it's, uh, that the written form of, of languages interplay in very uh, important ways with, with the uh, uh, spoken forms. You make the interesting point that, uh, as you put it, the hardest part of building a literate society may be finding uses for literacy. Um, could you develop that point? Well, uh, well, that's one way of uh, putting it. It is, of course, a very important uh, step to, to invent a way of representing language uh, by uh, signs of some kind, signs that can, can be uh, looked at and read. Um, this has been done, actually, uh, at least three times in human history, it seems. Um, definitely the first time was uh, uh, around 5,000 years ago uh, by the Sumerians. Sumerians. Uh, then independently, uh, as it seems, uh, about 3,500 years ago by the Chinese. And then uh, considerably later, uh, by uh, in the Mayan culture in, in, in Central America. It may have been uh, invented in other places too, uh, although it, it has never been extensively recorded. So it seems that the idea, while it's a brilliant and original idea, it, it, it 
uh, may have come to people in, in several places, but but it doesn't become important until uh, uh, people start using it for, for, for something useful. And in order to use it, uh, it's not enough for one or two people to know about it. You have to uh, to have a, a, a number of people knowing it, meaning that there has to be some kind of uh, education. Let's call it that, at least. Uh, people have to learn it, and a fairly large number of people have to learn it. So written language, which means society where uh, people have the time uh, to, uh, to spend uh, learning a fairly uh, abstract uh, way of, uh, of handling language and uh, have uh, the resources to, to, uh, uh, to use it for various things. Once you have that, it, of course, it's extremely useful, but, but it requires an organization so, so it will uh, be used in, in, in organized states, such as, for example, the old Egypt was with a strong central uh, power that could command people in, in uh, many parts of, of the country and organize hundreds of thousands of people. They had to have um, written language, otherwise it would have been impossible. On the other hand, their neighbors to the south and to the north at that uh, um, stage had no use for it because their societies uh, were different. Partly because of that, language hasn't, uh, written language hasn't spread at an even rate everywhere. Um, it was invented and used 5,000 years ago in, in uh, around Euphrates and Tigris and, and around the Nile, uh, but it didn't spread uh, to Europe until uh, a thousand years later, it didn't spread to, to Southern Africa until, uh, well, a few hundred years ago, uh, in spite of the fact that there have always been connections between Egypt and, and, Southern, uh, and, uh, and uh, Africa south of the Sahara. Uh, people south of the Sahara didn't have use for the uh, written language. Later on, you uh, discuss a similar question about the spread of internal Latin and Arabic, where you point out some of the curious, at least superficially curious, regional variations in the way they spread and the extent to which they spread. For instance, the absence of Latin in England after the Romans and the absence of Arabic in Persia. Do you feel that linguists tend to underappreciate the role of non-linguistic historical factors in these processes? Well, yes. Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, and uh, it may also be that, that uh, historians may underestimate the, the importance of the linguistic factors. Actually, it's, uh, uh, those are problems that... that uh, uh, should be approached in, in common by, by linguists and historians, I think. Um, but uh, this, unfortunately, it's, is not so often uh, done. Uh, as for for Persian, for example, it's uh, uh, it is uh, uh, true, uh, as you said, that that uh, in Persia. Uh, uh, present Iran, um, Arabic uh, never uh, became the main language. Although the country was was conquered by, by Arabs, and uh, for a long time it seemed likely uh, that the country would become Arabic. However, um, for for cultural and political reasons. Persian uh, had a renaissance and, and uh, Arabic retreated again, although it, of course, remains uh, uh, an important language in the country, being, being the, 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 the uh, uh, language that carries the, the, the um, uh, Muslim 
the religion which is extremely important in Iran. Yeah, but uh, uh, there is no equation, uh, necessary equation between uh, uh, belief and uh, language use. Just because you 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 uh, you are a Muslim, you you don't necessarily use or speak Arabic, of course. Um, it may be a, a strong incentive, and and in some cases. Uh, religion uh, does really uh, affect uh, a, a shift of language, but much more often uh, it, it's it's a uh, political factor. The same thing with with uh, uh, Latin in, in in Britain, of course. In the the the, uh, the Roman armies and the Roman administration uh, kept Britain for around. 300 years, and uh, there certainly were quite a few speakers of, of, of uh, Latin in the country um, around 400 AD. Uh, but uh, uh, when the Roman political power uh, collapsed, uh, the incentive to, to, to speak uh, uh, Latin wasn't. Uh, uh, was great and and uh, the number of uh, the actual number of uh, Latin speakers was uh, too too small. It turned out uh, to to uh, to make it possible for for the language to survive. Turning to Greek, you beautifully illustrate the concept of language's creation by pointing out some of the concepts identified by Greek thinkers which have been passed down to Western civilization in general. Do you feel that we're still shaped by those categories, that in some sense, if those, if language or if that culture had not happened to encode those concepts, that we would actually conceive of reality in general in a very different way? Yes. Um, yes, I believe so. Uh, it's, uh, of course, uh, not uh, exclusively a, a linguistic fact, perhaps. Uh, well, some linguists would say it has little to do with linguistics, but, but the fact is that, that uh, because of developments in Greece, uh, in uh, uh, in the classical times, several centuries before our era's era, uh, we still uh, have in in all uh, European languages a large number of words uh, that come uh, from Greek directly or indirectly, uh, and the words represent concepts uh, that uh, are. Uh, Inevitable part of our our culture, our civilization. You know, the, the Greeks uh, defined well. They invented concepts such as mathematics or categories, thing uh, or well, philosophy. Of course, the, those are uh, concepts that uh, we. We use and, and in a way cannot escape from. It's uh, very hard to conceive of a, a, a uh, of a mental word where where uh, the concept of mathematics, for example, doesn't exist in 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 the mind of a, a person educated in in, in the West uh, Western culture. And um, this has been so since the Greeks, and if they hadn't uh, defined it that way, it, it hadn't become uh, part of our culture. So in that way, languages are, uh, to a large extent, uh, repositories of, of uh, past achievements, let's say that. And um, it is in a story. Well, it, it didn't happen inevitably. It, it could have happened in other areas with other languages. Uh, Greece could have spoken something else, uh, but now uh, 
the Greeks did it, they spoke Greek, and so the Greek language became extremely influential. There's, I guess, a tension there between the notion of uh, discovering something and the notion of inventing it, um, and I suppose this, this speaks to a, two logically possible positions about the, about the nature of culture and civilization in general. My impression is that you, you tend to lean towards the, the belief that it, things are invented rather than discovered, that there you think of, uh, of these developments as very much human creations and artifacts rather than things that are out there in the in the ether waiting to be encoded and brought forth. Uh, well, that's true. In, in that way, I, uh, I'm uh, what, what, what uh, philosophers, I suppose, would describe as uh, nominalist. I, 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 uh, I don't believe that, uh, uh, that uh, our minds work with, with the, mainly with the concepts and ideas that were ingrained in them uh, by birth. But I, I think we, we, we uh, learn most of what we, what we know. And, and uh, if you believe that, then it's true that uh, things were invented and uh, uh, we learn them or uh, build upon them. Let me uh, let me change the subject slightly and, and returning to chapter two of your book, you discuss large language groups there and you focus especially on Indo-European and the Bantu languages, uh, both of which we've, we've talked about uh, a little in the beginning of this interview. Uh, why those groups in particular? Well, I think they are good examples of... Uh... Uh, the large language groups that uh, dominate uh, uh, the world uh, nowadays. If you, uh, if we go back slightly, I talked about those uh, uh, languages of gatherers and hunters. They are very many. Uh, they they are very dissimilar, uh, so that one has to. Um, Imagine that uh, 10,000 years ago, there were very many languages that were uh, spoken uh, in uh, many places with few speakers uh, for each language. Now, uh, what happened after that must have been that uh, some groups expanded uh, at the expense of many others, so that groups tended to be much larger. And then, of, of course, they split um, as uh, they became successful. They, they, they uh, uh, migrated in various directions. And by this process, groups, uh, originally uh, fairly small groups, could spread their language to, to large areas, and those areas... Uh, then uh, got large numbers of, of uh, let's say, descendants of one uh, original language, the original language of, of a very successful group. But this is obviously what happened with Indo-European language where languages. We do we know very little uh, about who the Indo-Europeans were, uh, but obviously some group or related groups spoke Indo-European several thousand years before our era and their language gave rise to several hundred languages that are are spoken now well well over a hundred at least depending very much on how you count them Um, likewise the Bantu languages spread uh, over most of Africa, south of Sahara, a couple of, well, beginning around three or four thousand years uh, before now. And uh, nowadays there are several hundred Bantu languages uh, spoken in that area. This process uh, has happened in many parts of the world so, so that you have, so that the world is, is dominated by, by a few such large 
language families, say, what, 20 or 30, depending on how far you go. And then uh, there, of course, are still uh, a number of small languages. But the, the most of us in the world speak uh, a language belonging to one of the families. And, of course, in, in uh, Europe and Asia, and nowadays on all continents, the Indo-European uh, language family uh, is the most well represented. Uh, in part four of your book, when you turn back to Indo-European, you talk about the emergence of linguistic identity in the nation state. Presumably this is something where there's a very different dynamic in the spread of Indo-European to the spread of the Bantu languages. Uh, oh, yes. Um, in in the uh, Bantu area, you can hardly speak about uh, nation states in, in the way uh, they are found in Europe until uh, the 19th century or the 20th century, really, because of uh, a, a completely different uh, cultural and historical background. The nation state is something that uh, was created by and by in Europe. The idea that uh, a certain group of people uh, belong together uh, and uh, should have a state all by themselves, uh, ideally, everyone speaking the same language. Uh, that idea of a, a, a nation state is not very old, actually. It's uh, the first ideas of this uh, kind uh, turn up in the late uh, Middle Ages, and, and basically, it's the nation states are, are uh, things that are entities that you find in in Europe from, from uh, what, six or seven hundred years ago and on, that uh, the, 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 uh, the old large states such as the uh, Roman Empire or uh, Arabic Empire and so on, they, they, they weren't nation states in that way because um, uh, this idea of a people uh, uh, that uh, everyone should belong to never was there in that way. It's it's uh, part of a European, well, we can call it ideology or or an idea of how how uh, states should function. And this idea or ideology is underpinned by a lot of uh, political will and also a great deal of cultural capital and you you talk about the uh, the linguistic or language related content of that and the way that emerged in Europe in the uh, 16th 17th centuries and thereabouts uh, yes yes um, of course uh, Europe at that time um, was still uh, culturally speaking very much uh, dominated uh, by one language, uh, Latin. I, I now talk of Western Europe, um, the part of Europe that uh, uh, was dominated by by, uh, uh, by the Western uh, Christian Church. Uh, there, uh, you first had the Roman Empire and then uh, the Christian Church, uh, which uh, had chosen Latin as its uh, its main vehicle, uh, and uh, for uh, many, many centuries, uh, Latin was virtually the only written languages in in, uh, in the whole of Western Europe and uh, on Central Europe, uh, as far east as uh, Poland and uh, Czechia and so on, and um, and Hungary. Yeah, and um, other languages weren't, didn't become written languages until, broadly speaking, a thousand years ago. English was one of the very first. It has uh, traditions down to, to the seventh century as a written language. But, uh, but um, uh, Latin dominated in, in, in uh, England as everywhere as 
as the written language for, for a long time. Only in, in the uh, 12th, 13th, 14th century uh, did European countries uh, find it less satisfactory to, to rely mainly on Latin and uh, um, uh, the states actually became, uh, and the leaders of the states, the political leaders, kings and others, uh, and the leading classes, uh, became uh, interested in, in using written language more for various purposes, administration, but also very much uh, literature, um, things connected with, with, with uh, uh, with cultural life, uh, so that the, the, the new written languages such as French, um, Spanish, Italian, later on uh, German, uh, even later Netherlands, Swedish and so on, um, they became languages that in a way uh, competed with Latin and tried to, to uh, uh, to take the place of Latin. And then, of course, uh, they had to become developed languages. That is, they had to, to, to have a standard, as Latin had, a strict uh, standard for spelling and so on, correctness. Preferably, they should also have a great literature so that uh, people started writing in the languages. And um, uh, that is the great era of, uh, uh, well, first great era of European, truly European literature. Um, it has a lot to do with the political aspirations of the, the states where this literature was written. A question that struck me reading that was whether you see the same need for identity uh, and the linguistic role of identity prevailing now and in the future, or whether things are now sufficiently in a sufficiently post-nation-state kind of environment that people are going to be more willing to uh, to give up their language or not to see it as a as a badge of identity in quite the same way. Oh well, uh, it is possible. Uh, the the the. It's not easy to to to, uh, to get a perspective, obviously, on on, uh, on recent developments. Uh, certainly, by and large, uh, in in the twentieth and twenty first centuries, almost all nation states of the traditional kind, uh, both in Europe and and in other continents, still are very much uh, interested in promoting their own language for, for practical and ideological reasons. However, what has happened in, in our century is, of course, uh, very important. One thing is uh, the enormous expansion of education, which means that people in all parts of the world nowadays, uh, have got formal training uh, in reading and writing in their first language quite often, but also very often in, in another uh, language. In some parts of the world, you only get training in, in uh, reading and writing English, not in your native language. Um, this, of course, means that uh, there is a, a, uh, a possibility that wasn't available in, at any earlier time in human history for, for people to, to choose to operate in, in another language that, than the language, than the first language they learned. This, I would say, well, it happens a lot, of course, in uh, many societies now. Uh, I'm a Swede. I live in Sweden. I, I know that, uh, well, I can still remember uh, the situation about half a century ago. Uh, at that time, English was known by several Swedes, but 
wasn't actually used very much, nor was any other foreign language. Uh, at this time, English is used extensively um, in, in many contexts, and uh, uh, virtually all Swedes know it. And of course, it's, it's possible uh, within a fairly long time that, that, that Sweden uh, becomes a truly bilingual society. However, it seems that uh, for the time being, mo most, well, Sweden, just as many other countries, will develop rather to, into a, a society with a strong uh, second language, which most people know. But in the long run, uh, of course, uh, this may mean that the, 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 the uh, the other language, the larger language, may take over completely. But again, it has to do with politics uh, to a very large extent. Um, as long as you have a, a, a Swedish government, for example, um, which uh, is interested in, in a Swedish identity for political and cultural reasons, there will be a very strong incentive to to, to to keep and to promote the Swedish language. And uh, there are no prospects, I think, for, for uh, a swift development towards much fewer languages in the world. But uh, within a few hundred years, many things may happen. Well, in the meantime, I must say I uh, feel very fortunate to be able to uh, conduct this interview in English. <laughs> I feel it's something of a disadvantage if we were in Swedish. Uh, uh, speaking to you, I'd also feel it's something of a disadvantage if we were to converse in Latin, um, as mine is very limited. Uh, when you talk about the birth and death of languages in your book, um, although you emphasise the importance of languages as cultural capital, actually you prefer not to use the term language death. Do you feel that term is unduly emotive? Uh, well, uh... It is, a, it is a motive. Of course, it may, perhaps uh, not incorrectly, it's, it's a sad thing when, when, uh, uh, when a, a cultural achievement such as, a, uh, such as a language that has developed over hundreds of years, hundreds of years or thousands of years, it just disappears. On the other hand, uh, language death uh, is perhaps a little, it's a very dramatic expression. Um, what happens in almost all cases, um, well, fortunately, it, it isn't that, uh, uh, that people are actually killed uh, or that the language ends because a population uh, just uh, disappears. What happens is that uh, uh, people shift to another language, usually a language with uh, more speakers. Um, and that shift is uh, rarely sudden. It happens over several generations. You could imagine such a, a change happening with my own language, Swedish. I, I, uh, I don't think it will in the foreseeable future, but it could happen. You know, the, 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 um, the first step is that everyone or almost everyone in the community learns a second language, as Swedes have already done. Then uh, that language, for some social reason, uh, tends to take over, usually because there are many uh, speakers of it around, it's not very, very, very uh, likely that Swedish will change now because we have, well, few native speakers of English in the country. But, uh, of course, that may change too. Uh, but it's much easier to change to language where you, um, when you, when you uh, meet native speakers of that language all the time. So, so most um, instances of language death is with when uh, or language shift is when a group shifts 
to, to a language that's spoken by their neighbors or people who live in the same town or in the same uh, part of the country. This, on the other hand, happens a lot with small communities so that uh, the number of languages uh, in the world becomes smaller. This is uh, in many ways deplorable. On the other hand, this is a process that didn't start now. It started uh, when people started farming, as we talked about, uh, and it's still ongoing. Uh, so the, the long-term process is that uh, lang uh, small languages disappear in favor of uh, larger languages. And uh, as yet, we cannot see an end to that process. I don't believe it will end uh, in the extreme situation that uh, everyone on earth will speak uh, one language because there are factors talking against that. But um, I'm sure there will be fewer languages and probably much smaller number of languages in 100 years from now than it is now. In the final part of your book, you talk about some of these trends and you uh, provide some more detailed speculations about future developments. One angle you don't emphasize there, which I'd be very interested to hear your views on, is whether there are some recent and future technological developments, such as telecoms, automated language tools, perhaps even biological engineering, which could uh, change the game unrecognizably as far as language development is concerned. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> it's not so so difficult to 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 to, uh, to think about it. The difficult thing is to 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 know what will be important. So far, uh, in the last hundred hundred fifty years, we have had a a number of important inventions in the field of. Uh, uh, linguistic communication, starting with the telephone and then the radio, the television, um, film with sound, you know, movies with soundtrack, etc., etc., and and of course now it's the the uh, uh, almost unlimited possibilities for com communication over the internet. Um, this is important, but. Uh, what it does, of course, is, is uh, making it possible for more people to speak in the way they have always, always spoken. Yeah. Automatic translation is interesting, and most linguists uh, would take the view that, uh, well, um, it is certainly technologically possible to uh, translate fast from one language to another uh, in oral communication. Uh, the quality is debatable. It hasn't been, uh, been possible in practice so far. Uh, I, I don't think it, it, um, the problem is unsolvable uh, when it comes to ordinary everyday conversation. Even automatic translation of written texts, as you know, uh, it's found uh, the quality is, uh, is not very high when it comes to complicated texts. With simple texts, it nowadays works reasonably well, but it has taken several decades to come to that uh, stage. Uh, so whether, whether we'll find uh, situations where people speak without uh, real problems with each other through some machine that translates from um, one language to another. I don't know. I doubt it partly because of the fact that um, spoken languages um, vary and spoken languages change um, faster and, and more dramatically than, than uh, written languages do which means that uh, you would have to have extremely adaptable programs or, or, or uh, algorithms uh, for, for uh, actually keeping up with what's happening all the time in the languages. 
then there are all the 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 uh, ordinary problems of translation it's uh, it's not easy and sometimes even theoretically impossible to to translate all the sense of a uh, of an utterance in one language into another but you shouldn't say too much um, it it may change our our linguistic environment and of course if you do that it may not be so necessary as it is now to learn foreign languages. We'll see. Well, our time is nearly up. Um, but to conclude, I must ask, on the on the uh, blurb of your book, it refers to your retirement in 2001 from the University of Gothenburg. Uh, and since then, you've done very many things. Where do you see your research taking you next? <laughs> well... In my age, uh, I think it may be wise not not, not to 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 uh, um, have plans uh, for more than a very short time in, in front of you. But but uh, actually, I am writing on a book which uh, uh, which deals with uh, uh, the uh, the Germanic peoples and languages. The, the, uh, the Germanic languages, of course, are the languages spoken in uh, northern and western Europe, such as German, English, the Dutch, and Swedish, Norwegian, Dan- Danish, and so on. And all those languages um, are related. The original speakers were called the Germani, uh, by the Romans, that's uh, from where we have have in English the term Germans, but uh, it included all the people speaking in that way and living uh, beyond the, the the border of of, uh, of the Roman Empire. So uh, I, I write some, something about uh, those people beginning in the in antiquity and and. Uh, uh, trying to follow uh, follow up what happened to them and to their languages up to the present time. Well, I wish you every success with the book and hopefully many more to follow. Thank you very much. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Goodbye. I've been talking to Tori Janssen about his book, The History of Languages. This is Chris Clemens from New Books and Language saying thanks for listening. Thank you.